0: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kula Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kula Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty.
1: This is Three CR Breakfast.
0: Oh yeah!
1: Alternative news, analysis, Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, seven oh, am to eight thirty am. Early
2: double. Clap your hands.
3: The- <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast here on Three CR Community Radio. Uh, it is the nineteenth of July, and it's just clocked over to seven AM. Uh, you're joined here by me, Genevieve. I've got Fung in the studio as well. Good morning, Fung. Hello. How are you going this morning?
0: Um, very well, thank you. How are you?
3: Yeah, good, good. Um, we were just talking about how you had a yeah
0: uh, beautiful
3: getaway to Brighton. <laughs> very it jealous. It was it
0: was very lovely. Um, it was very cold. It was, yeah. Um. Every morning we'd like go outside and then we'd look at the temperature and it'd be like 0 but feels like -3. Yeah. Does it it
3: does it wasn't snow in Bright obviously Um young. and
0: it wasn't when we were there. Yeah. Um but you could see snow in the far off distance. True. Uh and then we got back to Melbourne and it just felt so warm. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like ooh, here. sweating here. Um yeah. but it was really beautiful and um yeah it's just So nice to get away if you can, if you have the privilege to be able to leave the city and spend a bit of time away from the chaos of everything going on here. it seems like
3: everyone's uh, heading to like warmer climates as well. Mm. Uh, Lots of people are heading north and overseas and, oh, I'm so jealous, but... (laughs) That's all do. right.
0: We we're still having some lovely days here. So. Winter
3: is a beautiful
0: time to be in I Melbourne. actually really like it. it yeah, is. yeah. I know we <laughs> complain about it a lot, <laughs> but, but that's yeah. only because we have to get up so early and it's and yes. it's quite cold it's when you cold. leave the home. But,
3: um, but yeah, <clears throat> I feel like winter suits Melbourne a lot. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, really great things on during winter. Really yeah, like for tries sure. to like pull up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely pull up for it. Um, All right, well, uh, we do have a big show on, as always, this morning. Um, Do you want to kick us off what we've got coming up first?
0: Yeah, so coming up first around quarter past seven, we'll be speaking with Nebahat Eppolat, who is a choreographer, um, artist, dancer and advocate working here in Australia. And um, Neverhart is on the show to speak about the new work Uh, called Conquest of the Garden, which is um, an experimental dance work. Um, So, yeah, that's really exciting. Looking forward to speaking with them about that.
3: Awesome. And we're going to do a... um Uh, Just a replay recording of a brilliant conversation um, between Narita Waite and Sarah Schwartz, who spoke to Tess uh, about the coronal inquest into the death in custody of Veronica Marie Nelson. Um, This is a conversation that was originally aired on Done by Law uh, back in May, but it remains a crucial conversation about stopping deaths
0: in custody uh, to to today as well. And then, and then after that, we're we're going to revisit a, a conversation that Ayan had with uh, an anonymous international student yesterday on Diaspora Blues, and in their discussion, they tell Ayan about how hard it is for international students in this country to. Um, to live in a sense to find jobs to obtain visas and uh the exorbitant costs that are involved um in in trying to to live here yeah especially
3: now as well i don't know how international students yeah
0: and there's there's actually you know like not a lot of welfare and support for Mm -hmm. for international students so yeah that's coming up just before eight o'clock And just at ten past eight, um, you'll hear a conversation I had with Professor
3: Judith Bizant, who uh, is a professor at RMIT. We spoke about the new uh, proposed reform that the Victorian government is putting forward to restrict the use of non-disclosure agreements. Um, If you're like me last week and didn't know what this meant when I was reading it out in the news headlines... um, She does a really good job at explaining what NDAs are, what they do, why they can be harmful in the case of sexual harassment and uh, sex based bullying in the workplace, um, and what this new reform could look like. All right, we'll be right back after this break with the news headlines.
0: Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown.
4: When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street.
0: Tune in to Homeless in Hotels.
4: A three-part radio series
5: giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels.
0: And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19.
5: Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12 pm to
4: 1 pm.
0: On 3CR 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're now going to take you through some news headlines for today, Tuesday, the 19th of July. The latest State of the Environment report says that Australia has lost the most mammals of any continent. Um, It's a pretty scary report. Um, It's stating that more than 80% of Australia's nearly 400 mammal species are found nowhere else in the world and 39 mammal species have disappeared since colonization, um, which which roughly equates to 38% of the world's lost mammals. Um, So it's pretty dire um, Mm. and it's due to the ever-growing climate crisis here. Um, We spoke to Chris Schuringer last week about the disappearing greater gliders um, because of uh, logging and um, just a lack of protection and, of course, ongoing threats of bushfires. Um, And they are also named in this report. Um, uh, They have been – their status has been given – like they've been given an endangered um, status, but that doesn't always equate to more um, protection. Uh, So the report was – Um, prepared by a panel of 32 um, experts and um, it says and I quote increasing pressure from climate change habitat loss invasive species pollution and resource extraction have really taken their toll on Australia's um, ecosystems Uh, so yeah it's it's very Mm. serious and um, uh, a lot of Australia's wildlife is at um, at risk. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you are interested in hearing more, it's called the state of the environment report. And, um, you can have a, uh, have a look at uh, what that will mean.
3: Yeah. Just looking through some of the, um, main points as well. You know, some of them are, as you said, quite shocking. One of them is almost half the country is now used for grazing and the areas committed to forestry and cropping have increased. Uh, the other one is Australia has more foreign plant species than natives and hundreds of billions of dollars have been spent over the past 50 years attempting to manage introduced species. Um, and there's a few notes about the Murray-Darling Basin um, and obviously coral bleaching in the Great Barrier Reef. Um so, yeah, it's uh, pretty shocking, mm. um, but would be very good to have a read through if um, if you wanted to investigate further. Um, in other news, uh, advocates for women and children have uh, stuck in Syrian detention camps, say they have grave concerns two young boys could be taken off their mothers and sent to an adult prison any day. Their fears have been heightened by the news a 17-year-old boy from southwest Sydney died following an attack on the prison he was detained in earlier this year. Uh, His name was Yusuf Zahab, and he was 17 and was being held in Gwariyan prison in northeast Syria for three years without charge after his parents took him to the war-torn country as an 11-year-old. They were following his brothers, one of whom went on to become a senior Islamic State figure. The prison came under attack from Islamic State in January, at which time Yusuf sent a series of panicked voice notes begging to be rescued he hadn't been heard from since, and the family now believes he has passed, but questions remain about when he died and the exact cause. Uh, Yusuf was separated from his mother in 2019 after the fall of the Islamic State. Um, There is growing concerns that uh, they're urging um Australia to help um but it's an interesting story it really focuses on um the mother I think an interesting story about how separation of family um obviously to do with uh, a war-torn situation in Syria um that one's just on the ABC News if you wanted to have a read further and just lastly uh the protests in Sri Lanka has marked its 100 days of protests and it's been called supreme power of the people. Um, it's been a mainly youth led mass, uh, protests, protest movement in which Sri Lanka's worst ever economic crisis, uh, sorry, protesting Sri Lanka's worst ever economic price crisis has completed the 100 days. And during the period, the protesters forced a president and a prime minister, both brothers from the powerful but now unpopular Rajapaksa clan, to resign. With President Gotabaya Rajapaksa even fleeing the country last week to escape the uprising. It was the first time in Sri Lanka's history that a serving head of state had resigned. Gotabaya's elder brother and patriarch of the clan, Mahinda Rajapaksa, was forced to quit as prime minister in May after an attack on the main protest site in the capital, Colombo, by his supporters led to violence throughout the island. And also a third brother, former finance minister Basil Rajapaksa, also resigned from his parliamentary seat and tried unsuccessfully to leave the country earlier this month. The protesters blamed the Rajapaksas who dominated the island nation's politics more than two decades for the economic crisis, which saw people queuing sometimes for days for fuel medicines and other essentials. The anger came to a boil over earlier this month when tens of thousands of people hit the streets in Colombo, occupying important government buildings, including the official residences of the president and the Prime Minister, which is where probably a lot of people had seen those photos of what looks like to be hundreds of people uh, in the President's pool and um, in the President's building. Um, meanwhile, Prime Minister Ranil Wakrama Singh, who had replaced Mahinda Rajapaksa, was declared acting President tasked with the formation of a new government. But there is also anger against this new standing President president. Uh, cause while there were celebrations on Sunday, the sea facing protest camp in Colombo to mark the 100 days of protest, some people said they were aware the journey is not over yet. Um, it's been such an incredible, um, view of, uh, people power and the power of protesting, especially at a time when a lot of people feel very, um, uh, disillusioned to how, Uh, effective protesting is, as you can see in Sri Lanka, these people obviously faced with great hardship and, um, a really quite terrible economic crisis, um, have made a huge change in a country, um, that seems like nothing was possible probably a hundred days ago. Um, so it's been really interesting to follow. And I do recommend Thursday breakfast did a really great interview, um, last week, uh, following what was happening in Sri Lanka and, um, gave a really good insight into, um, the current events there. Um, all right, well, we'll, we'll be right back, uh, with our first conversation of the morning, right after these community service announcements.
6: 3CR Radiothon fundraiser. 3 to 7pm Saturday 23rd of July Uprise Radio and Stick Together join forces bringing you an afternoon of discussion and music climate capitalism and the future Zelda Grimshaw from Blockade Australia Dr Colin Long sustainability campaigner from Victoria Trades Hall and Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Service followed by tunes from local legends Les Thomas and Maxine Vink Followed by Sooty Owls Refreshments, Raffle and Fun Climate, Capitalism in the Future Uprise Radio and Stick Together Event 3CR Fundraiser Saturday, July the 23rd 3 to 7pm Black Spark Cultural Centre 253A St George's Road Tram 11 will get you there Stop 30, $10 solidarity, no one turned away.
0: You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 855 AM, or maybe you're streaming online at uh, www.3cr.org.au. Conquest of the Garden is an interdisciplinary and experimental new work by Melbourne-based choreographer Nebahat Epolat. The work takes inspiration from Farouk Faroukzad, a feminist poet uh, whose work in 1950s Iran was seen as highly progressive as a result of its criticism of the position of women in Iranian society. Joining us today to tell us more about Conquest of the Garden and Forhooksard's work is Nebahat Epolat, an independent artist, choreographer, dancer and advocate working in Australia and internationally. Welcome to 3 Breakfast, Nebahat. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, we might just start by um, asking you about your practice as a dancer, a choreographer and, and artist. Can you tell us more about your work?
7: Yeah so I uh I've been kind of um I guess dabbling in movement and exploration physical movement and contemporary um dance exploration for a number of decades now I think on and off but my practice very much um kind of uh I guess brings together um contemporary dance performance art as well as um site-specific work um, and I use a lot of different, I guess, uh, disciplines and, and uh, theories when working. For example, I'm also trained in somatic psychotherapy um, and I have a political science degree as well. So when I'm creating works, uh, my practice is very much kind of working from different theoretical models um, but very much embedded in the actual physical body, if that makes um, sense, and using space um, as well as as my canvas to work in. So when I mean space, I don't mean just space to move in, but space as another uh, important element in the work. And that could be through kind of um, abstract and conceptual understanding or philosophical understandings of space, but also uh, it could also translate, depending on what I'm researching, to more physical or environmental uh, issues and social issues that are happening around me. <laughs> so, yeah, so my work is very, very, um, I guess, very experimental, uh, very layered, um and very uh intercultural as well. So I bring uh different, I suppose, um, understandings and ideas from my lived experience being brought up by two Kurdish parents who migrated to Australia in the nineteen seventies, early seventies from Turkey. So i it's 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 a very yeah, I, I, I kind of look at dance and I work working the dance field um from a very um
0: yeah, kind of nuanced and layered way. And so, um, thinking about your your practice and all the different fields that you draw upon, as well as the um, richness of your lived experience, what was it that drew you to um, Farukzad's work, and and what led you to create a piece based on her poetry?
7: Well, yeah, that's such an important question for me. Um, look, as I said, growing up here and, and um, attending university, I just was so aware that every, every, everything, or every theorist we learned or artist was either male, white male, or was, um, you know, incredible women artists as well, like Cindy Sherman and um, Diana Arbus and and um in the dance world Yvonne Rayner and Trisha Brown and I just felt like there there is so much in the world. I mean there's so many other women artists from different cultures, you know, from um from Asia, from um the continent of Africa, from Middle East and um and I was really aware that we a lot of my peers weren't able to always relate or understand my own insights and experiences because of the lack of um, exposure to, s- to certain histories and artists and so forth. So when I was introduced to Fadha um poetry by another uh, fellow peer and friend who is an Iranian uh, filmmaker uh, working in, in Melbourne and Berlin, I naturally just was drawn to her work. I mean... This is a, a woman who um, sadly died very young in a in a car accident in um, 1967. She was only 33, but up until that, she made such an incredible she left such an incredible legacy, and that was because of her her extraordinary um, gift to to write poetry that was so intimate and it was so um, it was almost like a, a protest. Um, uh, you know, poetry protest, I guess, because her, she reveals so much about women's inner worlds of um, desires and sorrows and longings and aspirations. And this was in a time we have to remember that this was in the 1950s and 60s in Iran, you know, um, in a society where the Shah was ruling, uh, in an extremely ultra, ultra-conservative society for women and she was able to uh in conquest of the garden that this poem that we're actually exploring is very much a, a almost like a love poem to to the society uh her will saying i'm not accepting your way for me to love as a woman which is the traditional way i'm uh, expressing my love through uh just defying what's called what norms and 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 also um speaking about taboo issues such as desire and and intimacy and lust um so for me i needed to basically i felt like this is such an she's such an important artist for a contemporary um art sector at the moment because as I said, we we don't have a lot of understanding of women from, uh, the, especially from the Middle East. And, the, you know, I think sometimes when we look at the Middle East, we think about, you know, uh, we, of course, associate Islam and mm, with, uh, with that area of the world, but there's a diaspora of what it means to be a Muslim woman. And, you know, we... We all have our own unique stories and our perspectives, and Fatah Forouzand was one of those um, pioneers. I guess she was so transgressive in her writings that she really led the way to to inspire other women from Iran as well as throughout the Middle East to own their own voice and and write about their own experience without fear even though she did pay a price and she was exiled and she suffered as a result of of the exile and, you know, being um, punished for for what she believed in, she still never bent forward, you know, or bent back, sorry. She was able to continue her, her writings in Europe and also continue to live the life that she wanted to live, you know, in a time where it was very... Rare for women to do that, you know. Um, so that's that's why I've and and also I believe in Australia and in in Victoria, there's definitely an important place for work like this. Um, we need to hear more women's voices in the arts, um, both um, you know on stage as well as off. Um, and it's it's yeah, for me, it's it's a step towards achieving this.
0: Yeah, and like you said, you know, not just women's voices, but women of colour, women from um, Muslim uh, faith, women from um, different continents, not just, you know, the the Western world. Um, and it sounds like even though, you know, because I was, was writing in the 1950s, uh, I feel like a lot of perhaps her messages or her values would still be considered quite radical today, even here in in so-called Australia. So um, that sounds really exciting to be able to um, perform her work. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the people or the women who are performing with you and just some of the details in terms of um, where this is happening and and when?
7: Sure. So I'm working with an incredible team of women I'm really proud of and, Um, so there's four of us performing in the work and I'm performing for the first time in years, so it's really nerve-wracking, but I'm collaborating with uh, Sarah Davoudi, who is from Iran. She's an incredible uh, writer and actress uh, working currently in Melbourne. Um, And she will be uh, speaking in Farsi throughout the performance. Um, I won't tell, I won't say anything else about performance, that I don't want to give anything away, but, um, and then we have Helen Sky, who is a, um, another extraordinary artist, a woman artist, she is one of the pioneers, I can say, of contemporary dance uh, in Australia, she's been... Um, a radical performer since the 70s and also a radical activist for feminism since the 70s. So, and she is also a writer and poet as well as a dancer. Um, so, I feel quite privileged to have Helen amongst us. And the final performer in the work is Victoria Chu, who um, again is a uh, she has her own choreographic practice and um, a, a dancer, and um, so I think it's it's an inter it's it's an intercultural and also intergenerational piece. I have to say, and I'm proud of that. Um, so when people come into the space, they will see women who I guess um, are very powerful, a very um, um, What's the word that I'm looking for? Women who can carry work like this, um, in the sense that I think all what we share in common is our um, our support for for women's rights as well mm. and women's visibility. As you said, women of colour, women of all ages and abilities. The work. Um, will be performed at Studio One at Northcote Town Hall Arts Centre and is premiering on the 18th of August at 7.30pm. Um, and we will have three shows, so 18th, 19th and 20th of August uh, at 7.30pm. And uh, if people are interested and would like to support our work, which I hope, you know, which I'm sure there are a lot of uh, people who are, um, you can go on to the Darabin Arts uh, page and book your tickets through them. So it's it's something that we're all very proud of. It's, it's a work that hasn't been easy for us to uh, do because of COVID. So we've had three cancellations already, unfortunately, um, uh, in the last year and a half for the show. And this is our fourth attempt to bring this show to, to Melbourne audiences. So fingers crossed that we can we can this time you know um, go ahead with the the premiere without any COVID cancellations. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and also the context that we're living in at the moment with what's going on in the US, you know, with the anti um, with the the abortion rights movement is just i you know it's for us. It's an, an urgent reminder that we should not take our Rights. I mean, women's rights is a human rights granted, and that we need to keep um, keep putting women's voices um, and, and making sure our voices are heard from from all different perspectives, as you said.
0: Yeah, and that's something that here, you know, at Three CR and especially on Tuesday breakfast, we we try to to do um, every week throughout interviews. Um, on that note, Neva Hart, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the show to tell oh, us you. about your practice, about this um, incredible work that's coming up um, in August, uh, and we will make sure that the link to the Darban Arts website is in our show notes later this morning for our listeners. So thank you once again. And for, for coming on our show this morning
7: Oh no, it's been a pleasure and, and thank you again and to your listeners for tuning in
0: That was Nebahat Elpulat speaking to us about her new experimental dance work Conquest of the Garden um, As I've said, uh, if you'd like to buy tickets you can go to the Darabin Arts website or check our show notes later in the day for more details We'll be back after this message
3: You're on 3CR Community Radio on Tuesday breakfast this morning. It's just clocked over to half past seven. We're going to go to a track now uh, by uh, Australian artist Thelma Plum. Uh, This latest single called When It Rains, It Pours uh, was released just last Thursday. Just playing over the top there is Thelma Plum's new single, When It Rains, It Pours, uh, which was released just last Thursday. All right, we're going to go into a conversation that was had uh, back in May this year between Narita White and Sorry, Nawida Waite and Sarah Schwartz from the Victoria Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, They spoke to Tess about the coronal inquest into the death in custody of Veronica Marie Nelson. Um, As I said, this conversation was originally aired in May on Done by Law, which is a show on 3CR. Uh, But it, it remains a crucial conversation about stopping deaths in custody and the need for reform of our bail laws.
8: I'm speaking from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge and pay my respect to their elders, past and present. Um, I want to start speaking just briefly about Veronica Nelson and who she was. Coronial inquests can so often dehumanise the person whose death is being examined, and um, Veronica's family, including uh, the two parties represented in the inquest: her mother, Auntie Donna Nelson, and partner Percy Lovett. I um, really want people to know and remember who Veronica was, how she lived her life with love, generosity, and a deep connection to her spirituality. Uh, she was someone who was deeply loved. Veronica Nelson was a proud and strong Gundujimara, Jajawarang, Wiradjuri, and Yorta Yorta woman, and um, she was. 37 years old when she died at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. Dame Phyllis Frost Centre is the uh, main women's maximum security prison in Victoria. She died on the early morning of the 2nd of January, 2020, just three days after she had been arrested and refused bail for warrants and shoplifting related offences. Veronica appeared without a lawyer at the Melbourne Bail and Remand Court, and she was refused bail due to failure to meet um, the exceptional circumstances test. During her final a night in prison, she was distressed and cried out for medical assistance a number of times, and uh, she died alone in her prison cell. Veronica's inquest is also highlighting further issues in
1: the Victorian criminal justice system. So not only the bail laws, but other issues, which can include conditions inside prisons and access to medical treatment. So in terms of these other issues that unfortunately were also at play and resulted in Veronica's death, what do you see as the most urgent and requiring the most urgent reform?
8: Yeah, thanks Thanks for that, Meg. And um, I guess, as you know, we can't comment on uh, the evidence that's arising in the coronial inquest itself because we're acting for the family. But I would like to speak to um, this broader issue that VALS has been advocating for in regard to a number of our clients, in regard to the quality of the healthcare that people receive in uh, Victoria's prisons. Um, so my team at VALS, the Wear Away team, represents a number of families in coronial investigations into deaths in custody, and we also represent people in prison. And one really important issue for our clients and that can lead to devastating consequences and has been shown to lead to devastating consequences in the context of deaths in custody is the state of healthcare in prisons. And um, as uh, you know, and probably um, all your listeners know as well, there have been over 500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody since 1991. And uh, last year, a Guardian analysis on the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission uh, found that for both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous people, the most common cause of death was medical problems followed by self-harm. But the Guardian also found that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who died in custody were three times more likely to not receive all necessary medical care compared with non-Indigenous people. And for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, The result was even worse. Fewer than half received all of the required medical care prior to death. That uh, conclusion is particularly chilling, not only in light of the fact that the Royal Commission recommendations were made 30 years ago and have still not been implemented by governments, including the Victorian government, um, but also given that incarcerated people, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, have higher rates of underlying health conditions than the general population and the rate of Aboriginal people in prison is growing and Aboriginal women in prison is growing. So just to give a little bit of background into the Victorian context, healthcare in Victoria's prisons is the responsibility of the Department of Justice and Community Safety, not the Department of Health. So essentially what that means is that people in prison are not provided, don't have access to the same community healthcare system while they're in prison as people who are not incarcerated. So instead, the healthcare provided in Victoria's prisons is provided by this fragmented system of multiple for-profit private companies who are subcontracted by the state government to provide healthcare. Incarcerated people in Australia and in Victoria are also excluded from access to funding under Medicare and the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. Those factors not only impact the quality of healthcare in prisons, but also continuity of care as people exit and enter prisons. So without access to um, healthcare provided by the Department of Health, an Aboriginal person, for example, can't choose to go to VARS or an Aboriginal community controlled health organization that they would have access to um, if they weren't incarcerated. And then once they exit prison, their healthcare is provided by a completely different provider. And We see this um, and we hear complaints from our clients in prison who face these issues on a day-to-day basis. We hear about um, limited access to healthcare for critical conditions like cancer, diabetes, and heart problems. We hear from people in prison that they're often prescribed medication without a thorough health check. And despite the increasing rates of self-harm amongst Aboriginal people in prisons, we still hear about lack of access to counselling, psychiatric care, trauma, and grief support. Um, And as I said earlier, Aboriginal people in prison don't have access to culturally safe healthcare that's provided by Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations. And that's in contrast to other states such as the Northern Territory and the ACT, um, where some prisons have in-reach services by Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations, and that's a service available to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners. And we say that um, the healthcare that's provided in Victoria's prisons um, doesn't live up to the standards that um, are imposed by international law and the Charter. So, under international law, um, people in prison have a right to enjoy high quality healthcare, which is free and accessible and is the same standard of healthcare as non imprisoned people are receiving. That was also a recommendation of the Royal Commission, um, as well as to providing culturally safe care. And the Charter also provides a right to dignity and detention. We just don't think these things are happening in Victoria's prison and think that urgent government action is needed to fix this. Um, I won't go through all of our asks because we've got a lot, um, but Vows has recently made a submission to the RACGP standards on GP services in prisons Um, Amongst those recommendations, we think that what is needed urgently is for the government to transfer back um, control of prison healthcare to the Department of Health and consider services that can be provided to Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations, for there to be Aboriginal staff members and cultural supports that are available 24-7 in prisons um, as well. So um, those, and you can read more about... um, what our asks are of, in regard to the standards provided and uh, the healthcare care uh, in prisons um, on vals's website under our policy submissions as well.
0: Is there anything that you wanted to add to Sarah's answer, Narita?
1: Yeah, just um, in terms of uh, prison health care, which um, Sarah has answered beautifully, it's just that we need to remember that many of our Aboriginal community members actually cycle in and out of the prison system quite quickly. Um, Often enough, they'll be picked up on breaches of community corrections orders um, or for petty theft or other petty offending, um, end up remanded uh, in prison, um, be there from anywhere between a few weeks um, up to a few short months, and then out again and then cycle back in uh, quite quickly. So that means that there is very little ability um, for them to access healthcare um, anywhere but in the prison. So that's why it's really important that they have adequate, culturally safe healthcare. Um, When we look at particularly um, the state of Aboriginal health, when our people die quite young, I mean, um, my own mum died at 52. Um, Her brother, you know, just a few short years um, older. um, And those were long-term health conditions and um, that's not an exception in our community that is the norm Um, when we look at mental health with our young people um, suffering horrendous rates um of poor mental health and even those in prison, I mean, we saw a four hundred fifty percent spike um throughout the pandemic of our incarcerated population screaming out for mental health support because they were self harming or thinking of um going down that route, so to have critically quality healthcare um, that intervenes early um, not when they're at crisis point I mean if I look at some of the matters that we are currently um, going through the system for and even clients that I've spoken to who are incarcerated many of them receive an emergency prison healthcare response at the last minute not at that early stages where the outcome could be so much better so some of those um Uh, points I think are really important to remember. And just talking about um, how our population cycles in and out of prison, um, I think it's important to remember that that behaviour starts very young, um, particularly when a lot, of, a lot of our people who are in prison um, have spent long periods of their life under the care of the state as a child um, and they've cycled in and out of foster placements, in and out of residential care, in and out of uh, youth prisons and then transitioned into adult prisons. Um, so a lot of the time all they know is a system response. That is where they access services, that is where they try to get interventions and help um, and They just can't access it. Um, What we also find, um, just talking on that note about bail, is that many of our people who um, access bail don't have adequate access to programs to support them to complete that bail. Um, This was particularly prevalent throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and has continued on um, as services try to resume um, to what I believe they're terming COVID normal. And a lot of them don't have access to housing, which is critically important in, ter- in terms of providing a roof over your head and some stability. They don't have access to employment because they have criminal records. Um, and so the interventions around employment and training are quite poor. Um, they don't have the ability um, to access mental health care quite easily because the waiting lists are huge, um, and they've cycled in and out of prison um, a lot of the time. Their records are patchy because um, part of the prison healthcare failings are their record failings. We also see many of our people who, because they spent so many that so much of their life in institutions and in prison, don't actually have those connections to the outside to keep them rooted and grounded and again um, they rely on having access to programs to do that but those waiting lists are huge and we continue as latest state budget has shown to invest very little in early intervention very little in reintegration yet billions and billions on prisons I mean looking at the youth justice spending out of 400 million 11 million of that was spent on early intervention the rest was on the point here in the system, so incarcerating children. It gets worse when you look at the adult investment. Um, our service has struggled year after year to obtain funding to provide culturally safe legal services to our people to keep them out of prison. Our need in some regional site has blown up by 128%, yet year after year, We do not get any investment from the state that is worthy of mention. We survive purely on the funding of the Commonwealth, which in itself is limited. And particularly when you look at the Andrews government and the justice policies that they have perpetuated and supported, those policies have affected people of colour, my communities, migrant communities, and those who suffer disadvantage in relation to mental health, disability, all of those cohorts have been unfairly discriminated against by these laws, and yet we can't get funding to help them, even though the government is well aware of those effects. So it gets really frustrating working on my end of the system when I have to justify to my community why I can't represent a young mum who needs legal services, not only just to address her criminal matters, but also to address her child protection matters so her children can stay within her family, stay connected and avoid the institutionalisation of care that the state provides. Um, she might, she'll might. she also need help with her civil matters in terms of fines that her partner has most likely ran up under her name uh, to assist her housing, which is most likely subpart and is not in a good state of repair, despite her paying quite reasonable rental rates. Um, she'll also invariably need help with domestic violence uh, because we have seen those rates um, certainly increase from self-reports our clients have provided. But I have to sit there and justify to that woman why her family and her community, why I can't help her because I simply don't have the resources. I don't have the funding. I don't have the people. And importantly, I also don't have the place. Um, Our services are run out of Melbourne and we have tried year after year to try and get funding to provide place based services to our community, which is critical to be in community where people are to make access to culturally appropriate legal services easy so that it is not a barrier to access help, it is not a barrier to providing early intervention. But also, we can tailor our services to those communities because every community is different, every person is different, and we need to accommodate that difference. Rita, um- thank you so much for sharing that with us and do you have any i mean i think for our listeners hearing both you and sarah um i'm sure that many of them are feeling as I and i are now enraged but also wanting to get involved and to support services who are there on the ground doing the work do you have any recommendations for things that our listeners can do to support the work of valves and other organizations that are helping families such as Veronica's and so many other families across Victoria who are grappling with the issues that you both outlined today? Mm. The important thing is don't look away. Um, Quite often uh, people will rally around an article um, and share it around, but then that's the extent of their interest. Um, follow um, Dajwa, follow um, VAUS and Aboriginal Legal Services in your area and support them. Write to the Premier, write to your local members uh, around funding, around policy changes. Um, we are quite um, apt to share all of our views um, throughout our website, our social media, um, and we welcome um, people's interest. We also run webinars um, as a way to educate um, the broader community on what changes are required. Thank you so much for that, Narita. Unfortunately, we
9: are running out of time, so I would like to thank you both for coming on Done By Law tonight. And, of course, we are also thinking of Veronica's family and community in this really difficult time. So for our listeners, to find out more about vowels, please go to their website. That's www.valsvals.com. And you can find links to a number of resources, including the submission Sarah referred to in relation to health services in Australian prisons. On the website, there's also a current petition to fix Victoria's broken bail laws. So you can read more about
3: this and sign on the VOWS website as well. You're on Tuesday Breakfast, and you just heard from Narita Waite and Sarah Schwartz from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service speaking about the death in custody of Veronica Marie Nelson, as well as the state's broken bail laws. Uh, as uh, they said, to sign the petition and to stop black deaths in custody, please go to the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service uh, website and slash bail
5: petition. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the programme Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk a zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically source cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at LivingCoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
0: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au
6: Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio.
3: That's right. You're on 3CR Community Radio, Tuesday breakfast. It is 7.53am on this uh, Tuesday morning on the 19th of July. Uh, We're going to go into uh, a conversation that was had yesterday on Diaspora Blues, where Ayan spoke with an anonymous international student about the challenges that international students face in obtaining visas, the high costs involved, as well as the lack of welfare and support offered to
10: students.
9: Can you tell me the process for applying for a student visa?
10: Mm -hmm. So there's several processes to apply to a student visa, and mine will be different from anyone else, just because we also have, like, all different passports. And so I applied for a student visa with um, immigration, with with a student agent, because... That's the easiest way to do it. And I'm quite lazy with paperwork. So, and also because it's a free process. So usually when you go to like a a university's website or like a school website, they have um, a list of uh, agents they are working with. And so that just like makes it so much smoother because there is a lot of paperwork that you need to provide to the school and most importantly, to like the immigration um, services. So, yeah, usually you just have like a few back and forth. You pay everything to the agent and then they do everything online for you. So when
9: you say pay for the agent, so you just pay for the agent or do you also pay for the, the cost of the application?
10: I don't know. I think that the agents are getting paid ba- paid by the school. Because I, when I like when I break break down the cost, I, it doesn't seem like they are adding on any any money to the to the total amount. So I'm assuming that uh, most likely the agent is getting like a um, percentage of like the the school fees, and also every time you you pay the money to the agent, they like completely disappear. Like I've had like three agents since I moved here, and whenever you would just ask them like the most random question you know I mean a question about school the most simplest question they would just like not bother replying because you've already paid them so in their head like they've done their job so now you have to deal with the school.
9: Are there avenues for complaints? Is there anyone
10: that you can speak to about that? So I don't think you can speak to anyone because it's like to them they have provided the service and they have but you're still a student who has a lot of questions so to them they ju- you just need to talk to the, to your school or ask someone else, you know. But uh, no, so there's no one you can actually talk to.
9: Yeah, so they do the initial process. But if you have follow-up questions, it's not like a long-term relationship. That's what I'm hearing.
10: Yes, they are just gone.
9: <laughs> okay, so you've applied for the process. Sorry, you've applied for the visa. This obviously comes from your own pocket. When it comes to the cost of schooling, do you pay that upfront or is that...
10: Yeah, so for the cost of the schooling, it's extremely expensive. And first and foremost, you need to pay a deposit for the school before getting your confirmation of enrollment, I think, or your letter of offer. It's one of these two paperwork, but anyways, if you're applying for a new visa... You need to get a letter of offer from the school, and you can only get this letter of offer if you have paid the deposit. So, the deposit most of the time is like one term cost. And just a few like material fees, service fees, and it's always like over a grand, just so you, <laughs> so just so they know that you're like invested in it and committed, you know, because I guess that a lot of, a lot of students might disappear, or like maybe if you get a better offer, or if you get a job in the meantime, you just like cancel the school, so they want to make sure that they, they, get, they got themselves covered. Um, and then it depends on the schools. I've uh, joined schools where you have to pay, everything by in four installments, so like if you're doing if you're studying for a year, most of the time, so I'm only doing tapes because they're that's what what that's what's the most quote unquote affordable, and they're all around eight to ten thousand dollars a year, so you have to drop twenty five hundred dollars on the first term, but knowing, keeping in mind that if you're applying for a new visa, so that's just, like, the money for the school, but you have to pay for your visa, and because you're an international student, you also have to pay for your um, health insurance upfront, and so your health insurance has to cover you for the whole period of your visa, which is most likely over a year, mm. so that would be, like, another grant, your visa, it's another grant, so... All in all, you're like spending at least like three to four grand upfront.
9: That's a lot. This is the first time I'm hearing this this from you, and I've known you for like two years now. Would you say two couple of years more, at least? Wow! Yeah, okay. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. You made an impression on me towards the end of our friendship. Now I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> um. All right. Wow. So that's a lot of money. Do you get welfare support? Lala. Okay, so that is definitely an... no. And then what happens once your visa runs out?
10: Well, you have the choice. Well, the thing is that when you're applying for a visa, you have to write a, a genuine temporary entrant letter stating that you're only here to study, and then you're going to bounce. You know, you're not going to stay in the country. You're very attached to your home country. You have strong ties to you, to your family, your community, home, whatever. So they really want you to say, to state that you're going to like bounce afterwards. So you're supposed to leave after you finish your studies, but you can also apply for a new student visa, or if you're lucky, for a skilled visa, or you can get sponsored or you can get married. Yeah, these options, but all of them are pretty dreadful. So tell me about this sponsorship. Oh, the sponsorship. This is, I guess this is like (laughs) the dream for most international students. And this is also something that I'm manifesting. So if anyone is ready to sponsor me, hold on me. Uh, So (laughs) (laughs) the thing is that obviously, so the government makes it really complicated for uh, companies to sponsor Mm. international people. So essentially, if you are, let's say if you run a cafe, right? You run a cafe, you want to sponsor someone in, the, working in the kitchen, someone working on the floor. Uh, they would have to, if, if, if it's someone working on the floor, I think they have to be made like manager. But even before thinking about sponsoring them, you have to actually advertise the job to uh, citizens of the the country, so like Australian. And you have to really prove that you've searched for like weeks or months for a citizen uh, candidate, but you could not find them. Mm -hmm. And that your only resource was this international person.
2: Right. And
10: then I think you you also have to pay for, for their sponsorship. And it depends on, like, the um, which uh, skills they have. Sometimes it's not too expensive. Sometimes it's, like, a few thousands dollars. Yeah. So it can also be negotiated. A lot of people just, like, will pay half and half. The boss will pay half. And the person who's applying mm-hmm. for the visa will pay, pay the, for the other half.
9: Yeah. I mean, it sounds fantastic, but I'm guessing there's, like, hurdles. What kind of issues do you think you might face because I know you're interested in sponsorship so is that as straightforward I'd also love for you to speak on the fact that certain industries are regarded more highly than other industries
10: mm. well I haven't really looked into it that deeply to be honest it's like mo- most of the information that I got was like from people who got sponsored or try or to get sponsored and there's also a lot of horror stories in this because uh Some people will get the sponsorship and also when you're, so when you're getting sponsored, you have to stay within the same company for at least two years and then you can move on with your life, either stay with the same company or like uh, work for, work somewhere else. So I know someone who got sponsored in the company and then as soon as they got sponsored, they started to get like really, um, uh, emotionally abused by uh, the manager, you know, and so they were able to finally get out of it. But uh, mm. uh, some other companies would say that uh, they they've done the paperwork, and so you would like go to work with a free spirit, thinking that you've covered. Mm. But then the company hasn't done any of their of, of their job, so they you literally have to leave the country within the next week, you know. So. It's uh, yeah, it's a bit complicated. But uh, regarding the different type of industries, uh, so there's a, um on the immigration uh, website there's a list of quote unquote skilled um, skilled work, and obviously if you're like a doctor, if you're like an engineer, also if you're like a mime, weirdly enough, you can what? get yes. <laughs> I mean, I looked deeply at this list to see who could get like a skilled visa who might be sponsored in this country. And so mimes, actors, ballet dancers, I have nothing against these people. but uh, (laughs) They can get a sponsorship, but um, not uh, within my industry.
9: Wow, like I know mime is a big thing in France. I mean, that's what I've read. But like in Australia, I've never seen a mime outside.
10: I know, maybe that's why. They're trying to get some of that market here. They're
9: they're trying to make mime fetch? (laughs) Oh, God, that's hilarious. Okay, so we've looked at the process. We've looked at the costs. Um, I know you said that you wouldn't have any advice, but is there a general thing that you can say to people who might be going through what you're going through in terms of, like, I don't know, resilience? Because the system is the system, but are there things that you can do to kind of ease the situation
10: Ah, <sighs> that's a good question um something to ease well i guess uh it's like I'm giving a, an advice that I'm not following myself, obviously. But it would be to just like do it as soon as possible to not wait the last minute like I always do because there is a lot of paperwork and it's a lot of money involved, so it's very stressful. And you're like, "Fuck, I need to actually drop a few grams," which I don't have. So it's like, it's it's if you, if you know that your visa is gonna run out, if you're not on, on a student visa and you're thinking about getting on a student visa, start thinking about it at least six months ahead, and also. Regarding the schools, because obviously those staff courses, most of them are extremely dodgy. So um, you really want to like talk to someone who's actually in the school. Do not talk to the sales agent, to the marketing agency from the school, even the teachers. Most of them are casual and they really don't give a shit. So you really need to talk about, to talk with the students who have done like a certificate, diploma, whatever, and to actually see... Um, if it's for you or not because most most of the schools really don't care about you they just see you as like a walking wallet.
3: That was a conversation that was had on Diaspora Blues uh, yesterday where Ayan spoke with an anonymous international student about the challenges that international students face, including obtaining visas and the high cost of living. Uh, Up next, we're going to play a track now by uh, Aussie-based artist Julia Jacklin. Uh, This is a song off Julia's 2019 album Crushing, and it's called Pressure to Party. Jacqueline's Mod. song, Pressure to Party, from uh, Julia's 2019 album, Crushing.
9: Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants including grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4, and children free. Check out our website for plant lists au forward slash Australian Plants Expo.
3: A 3CR supporter. So last week, the Victorian government proposed reforms that will restrict the use of non-disclosure agreements in sexual harassment cases to prevent victim survivors being silenced. The move has been welcomed by employment lawyers and industry groups, and uh, I had a chat to uh, Professor Judith Bizant uh to help explain exactly what this means, uh, Judith is a professor at RMIT University and her research and writing covers politics, youth studies, policy, sociology, media technology studies and history. Uh, Judith has also written about non-disclosure agreements and also submitted a letter to the National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment in the Australian workplaces about the harm of non-disclosure agreements. And just before we get into this chat, just to trigger warning that we will be be talking about sexual harassment and sex-based uh bullying uh so if this is something that you'd rather tune out of you can tune back in in the next 15 minutes and we'll be back it's such a pleasure to have you on judith welcome to tuesday breakfast
5: well thank you genevieve and thanks for the uh invitation to talk about such an important topic of course yeah i think it's a um
3: really important thing to uh, explain and uh, getting an expert in is probably the best way to do that. Um, So since sex discrimination, commissioner Kate Jenkins report last year into sexual harassment and sex based bullying, uh, specifically in our parliament workplace, uh, there's obviously been much discussion about the harm of silencing and concealing victims of sexual harassment in the workplace to which non-disclosure agreements contribute greatly. I think a good place to start here before we get into what the Victorian government has done, uh, if you could just explain, you know, what are non-disclosure agreements and how are they central in perpetuating this toxic workplace uh, environment?
5: Okay. Well, <clears throat> non-disclosure agreements or NDAs, they're called, you know, gag clauses sometimes or confidential. Confidentiality uh, agreements. So they're um, le- they're a legal tool, and they're legally enforceable, enforceable agreements between the participants to um, a discussion um, that what's discussed remains confidential, and what remains confidential. Depends largely on the terms of the agreement, but basically, in most cases, it means that um, a, uh, a victim or a survivor or a complainant can't discuss, dis- discuss what is in that agreement or what was talked about or the issues, and sometimes that can even stipulate that they can't talk about it to anyone. They can't talk about it to their family. They can't talk to their counsellor or their healthcare worker, or, um, so on and so forth, and. Uh, I'll talk about the harms that can cause later on um but sometimes i um even though uh, non disclosure agreements have been you know widely abused and become you know s- systemic um or you know part of the process now sometimes they are legitimate um so when sensitive information like trade secrets intellectual property designs formula, etc um uh give another competitor a, sort of an advantage over you know others, then they're legitimate. Um, but they've been used recently in the last decade or so um, in a way that has actually silenced and harmed um, complainants and victims and also um, worked against the public interest and created toxic workplaces. If they're breached, there are significant consequences for the person who breaches them. Um, so, and some some complainants actually do want NDAs, but many don't. And I
3: guess specifically to Australia, uh, you know, obviously before this new proposed reform. Uh, here in Victoria, uh, has that been generally, well, I guess what has been Australia's approach to NDAs and how has it affected our workplaces?
5: So, yeah, like I said, they've become really widespread and abused and almost like the standard practice um, and amongst lawyers um, and amongst employers. Um, and it just means that the... The victim or the complainant or the survivor doesn't get to sort of sit at the table with an employer unless they actually agree um, to uh, sign a non disclosure agreement. And basically, they're gag laws or Mm -hmm. gag talks that stop them from um, talking about what they're. What has happened to them? And that might sound, you might say, oh, well, you know, they don't have to sign it. They don't want to. Fine. You know, we're all free. We live in a democracy, so they say. But when you think about the power differences between um, a person who's been often subject to harmful kinds of harm contact for for years um, and the effects of that, um, saying no, Uh, to an employer when there's an opportunity to resolve an issue or to get a settlement is not an easy thing. You know, usually they're injured, they're exhausted by the incidences, and, um, you know, and then they can't talk about it after that. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I feel like it was a
3: word thrown around so much when there was that whole investigation into sexual harassment in parliament, the Jenkins report, um, all of this kind of discussion at our parliamentary and political level about sexual harassment in the workplace. And I guess I really want to get into, you know, what, what's the harm of NDAs? What what effect do they have on uh, survivors and um, why are they so dangerous when it comes to sexual harassment in the workplace?
5: Well, the great question. And I just might extend it to um, it's not just sexual harassment in the workplace. There are other kinds of harmful conducts that are covered up by NDAs um, and yep. it's not adjust the workplace. Um, we only have to look at, you know, um, <clears throat> the, the, the the Catholic Church, for example, to see what harm non-disclosure agreements can do. So basically they're, they're, they're a legal tool that will gag a, uh, a person who's been subject to um, a harmful um, conduct and they conceal the problem mm. um, and that's... That's a problem not just for the person concerned and those around them, but also for the organisation, right, so that it prevents learning. It prevents the organisation to learn about, you know, the bad things that are happening and to address, to identify the problems and to address them. Um, And also it can create uh, institutional amnesia in the sense that, People just go on and forget about it. Oh, that didn't happen here. And you see various forms of um, denial. Um, it. They can also um, stop people from coming forward uh, because they've not seen anybody else do it before because nobody else talks about it. So there's nobody to sit beside you or to ring up and talk about it. Um, and there's also like a fear that people won't believe what I say um, because often they're in a less powerful position. Um, they're, you know, there's gender and age-based inequalities in, in the organisation we talk about. They're fearful of the shame um, of being stigmatised. And so what happens is that the perpetrators are never held accountable um, and they're often, like, just moved on to an or- another organisation or another part of the organisation um, or sometimes they're even promoted. Um, so and senior managers can often then say officially "Well, we don't know about it because there's they're shielded you know if they're encouraged by HR human resources or whoever does it to sign an NDA then the head of the organization can say the CEO or whoever it is can say well I don't know anything about it and they've they're sort of you know, don't have to carry the, the burden of the, the a, a conscience about it. Mm. Um, so what happens is that the offending um, conduct is covered up, it's shut down, and the problem continues and it gets worse. And so you get more people who are affected by that kind of bad behaviour, more victims. who never get to tell their story, but others do who know about it who were observers or on the periphery, um, and, but they can't talk uh, to their colleagues, they can't defend, they can't themselves, they can't correct somebody who's talked about what happened that's misrepresenting them, um, So, and they can't talk publicly. Uh, so the victim or the survivor is stigmatised and condemned to silence in perpetuity, unable to defend themselves or even talk about what happened. Mm, yeah. And I think you made such an
3: important point and me coming from someone that doesn't have any, uh, legal trainings is brilliant. Um, and like this extends beyond the workplace, this extends beyond just sexual harassment. It's, uh, NDAs are implemented in various different settings. Um, and also I think important as well, the, the hierarchy of, you know, how these things work. And I think you made it a really interesting point before about, you know, well, We live in a democracy like you just don't sign it but there is power there's powers that be that kind of push people to uh get into situations that they don't really understand um or kind of led to believe that it will benefit them but it won't in the end um i want to focus on what's happened here in victoria last week uh where there was proposed reforms Uh, put in place to restrict the use of these NDAs uh, in sexual harassment cases, specifically here in Victoria. Uh, Could you please explain what this means exactly for people in Victoria and, uh, I guess, how this will impact uh, these sorts of cases uh,
5: more generally? Um, I'm hoping that it will set a precedent uh, for other states and territories in Australia to follow. It has happened elsewhere in other jurisdictions overseas, like California, for example. Um, and the as you mentioned, I think, earlier, the Australian Human Rights um, Commissioner Kate Jen- Jenkins made a recommendation, 38, in her report about um, there needing to be some kind of practice notes or guidelines for NDAs. Um, but in my view, um, that doesn't go far enough in the way that the Victorian government has because the Attorney-General's office is, I think, still in the process of developing those guidelines, but they're guidelines. Um, and I think that what we need is what the Victorian government is hopefully you know, going to do, and that is to, um, to ban them. Because the other thing, too, is that millions and millions of taxpayers' dollars are spent on NDAs keeping people quiet and taxpayers don't even know about it. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, it's about time that the public knew what was going on. I think it will be good because it will um, encourage transparency if people are talking about what's happening. Um, But I think while transparency is important, we also need major change to uh, workplaces and to organisations. And that... Includes addressing issues like gender and age based inequality um, in the workplace um, and also um, outside the workplace. Um, Fixing the judicial system so that the legal path is a more viable option for women. At the moment, it's not. Um, so that victims can seek remedy. Um, and hopefully, you know, if they get rid of NDAs, that won't be an option. I think. guess what I'm talking about is how you fix the workplaces. And, um, and I suppose the difference is that um, harassment is uh, different to um, something that's illegal. So I won't go into that because I'm not a lawyer and I don't want to sort of trip myself up on that. Um, but I think that besides getting getting rid of NDAs, we also need to make workplaces um, healthy and good places for, for women and for all people, young people, old people, all, all kinds of people. Um, we need to have more accountable management practices so that management, people in management, senior management positions know what's going on and take their job seriously. Um, and also I think HR, human resources, uh, organisations within big organisations, government and private, um, are prepared to acknowledge and address the particular issues.
3: Yeah. Um, and also, you know, obviously all these kind of ref- proposals of reform are happening on a state level uh, but not at a federal level. Do you think that there would be any, like, it is important for this stuff to happen on a federal level as well?
5: Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it would be great. And, you know, we've got a new government in office now as an opportunity for the Albanese Labor government to, um, you know, uh, to to move in this way. Um, I think there's just, it's, this has been issues around sort of gender-based violence of various kinds have been going on for decades and decades. You know, we we go back to the Royal Commission uh, in, into um, institutional abuse of, of children, um, the Me Too movement, um, you know, as you mentioned before, we've got sort of Grace Tame, who was the Australian of the Year, talking about, you know, sexual abuse and the former Liberal uh, staffer Brittany Higgins, who was, you know, on the news and making it a high-profile issue, and then we have, you know, people like this, Australian or former Australian Attorney General Chris, Christine Christian Porter, who made front-page news about sort of denying historical rape claims. So it's 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 something that pervades ev- all, not all, many organisations, even you know, the inner sanctum of our government, you know, parliament. And and so I think that it's something that needs to be taken seriously. And getting rid of NDAs is one thing that Albanese government can do to demonstrate it's really serious about this. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
3: And as you said, um there are many things that need to be done, but yeah, NDAs are definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, thank you so much, Judith, for joining us. Really appreciate getting your take and explaining uh, what happened last week because I'm sure as our listeners who were listening last week knew, I didn't know <laughs> what I was talking about when I announced it. Um, but
5: thank you so much. And thank you,
3: Genevieve. That was Professor Judith Bizant uh, explaining to uh, me specifically uh, who didn't know much about NDAs, but I hopefully it was helpful to uh, our listeners as well what exactly are NDAs why they are harmful and especially why they 're harmful in the sense of uh, silencing um, survivors of uh, sexual harassment and um, Uh, sex-based bullying, especially in our workplaces. If this conversation has brought up any feelings for you that you wanted to um, have a conversation with, you can call 1-800-RESPECT, which is on 1-800-737-732.
4: If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends, and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on one 500 That's one 500 Wellways supports 3CR.
3: We've come to the end of our show here on Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, Just to go through at the start of the bracket, uh, Fung had a conversation with choreographer. Um, and dancer and advocate working in Australia, Nebahayat Apolat, about her new work, Conquest of the Garden, which is an experimental dance work drawing on uh, inspiration from uh, the Iranian feminist Farrah Uh We also had some replays of um, some pretty notable. Uh, interviews happen that have happened on 3CR including uh, the Stop Black Deaths in Custody and Reform Bail Laws uh, and we also heard from uh, Diaspora Blues that was played yesterday where Ayan had a conversation with an international student about some of the challenges that they're facing at the moment and you just heard from uh, Judith Bizant about what are NDAs and specifically the reforms that are being pushed through in Victoria at the moment about restructuring uh, Restricting their use to help uh, survivors of sexual harassment, especially in the workplace. Uh, keep it locked to 3CR. We've got Accent of Women coming up next, and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your Tuesday.